Jag är här nu på Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag Welcome to the 363rd of the Cthulhu Podcasts. I'm Felbrick. Today, we'll continue with South with Scott by Edward Evans, who was part of Scott's fabled and fatal journey south. And then we'll continue the reading of Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Let's head to that white continent. 2. Instructions to Dr. G.C. Simpson My dear Simpson, in leaving you in charge of the Cape Evans station, I have little to do beyond expressing the hearty wish that all may be well with yourself and the other members of the expedition remaining with you. I leave in your charge a box, containing instructions for the commanding officer of the Terra Nova and other documents which I wish you to deliver to the proper persons. I think you are fully aware of my plans and wishes, beyond their expression in the various statements you have seen and that it is needless to go further with written explanations. As you know, it is arranged for Ponting, Hooper and Anton to make a journey to the southwest in December. Ponting will leave with you a written statement giving an outline of his intended movements. Later in the season, he will probably visit Cape Royds and other interesting localities. Please give him what assistance you can in his important work. From time to time, Mears may be visiting the station, and I hope that by this means, or through the telephone, you may receive information as to the progress of the Southern Party. The thawing of the drifts in summer will have to be carefully watched, and such measures as are necessary taken to avoid injury to the hut and to the stores. Cases should not be exposed to wet or tins to rust. The breaking of the sea ice should be carefully watched, noted, and reported to Hut Point when possible. Bowers will leave notes with you concerning store requirements and desirable expenditure. I anticipate the ship may have some difficulty in reprovisioning the station. You will, of course, render all assistance you can. Details as to the improvement of the hut for a second winter will become more evident as the season advances. In addition to the probable renovation of the stables, I can only suggest the following points at present. 1. An extension or rebuilding of the entrance porch, so that the outer door faces north. Regard must be had to the possibility of bringing sledges to the hut. 2. A shelter extension to latrine. 3. The construction of an airtight embankment or other device at the base of hut walls to keep the floor warmer. 4. The betterment of insulation in your corner and the provision of a definite air inlet there. 5. The caulking of small holes and slits in the inner roof. 6. The whaleboat should be looked to and probably filled with water under advice from ship. After departure of Southern Party, all mattresses and bedding should be rolled up, and as opportunity occurs they should be thoroughly dried in the sun. You will remember that as the summer advances, certain places in the solid flow become dangerously weak. It should be well to keep watch on such places, especially should they occur on the road to Hut Point, over which parties may be travelling at any time. It is probable that there will be a rearrangement of the currents in the region of Tent Island, since the breaking of Glacier Tongue. 
Signed, R.F. Scott. 3. Instructions, Leader of the Western Party. 1911. The objects of your journey have been discussed and need not be particularised. In general, they comprise the geological exploration of the coast of Victoria Land. Your party will consist of Debenham, Gran and Ford, and you will cross Sound to Butter Point on or about October. You will depart from Butter Point with provision as under. 11 weeks pemmican, 10 gallons oil, 18 weeks remainder, and 25 pounds cooking fat. And make along the coast to Granite Harbour. You will leave at Butter Point two weeks provisions for your party, for use in case you're forced to retreat along the coast late in the season, and for the same eventuality you will depot a week's provision at Cape Bonacci. On arrival in Granite Harbour you will choose a suitable place to depot the main bulk of your provision. As the commanding officer of the Terra Nova has been referred to Bluff Headland, shown in the photograph on page 154, Voyage of the Discovery, as the place near which you are likely to be found, it is obviously desirable that your depot should be in this vicinity. I approve your plan to employ your time thereafter approximately as follows. During what remains of the first fortnight of November in exploring north of Granite Harbour. During the last fortnight in November in exploring south of Granite Harbour. The only importance attached to the observance of this programme, apart from a consideration of the work to be done, lies in the fact that in case of an early breakup of sea ice and your inability to reach the rendezvous, the ship is directed to search the coast south of Granite Harbour. You should act accordingly in modifying your plans. It will certainly be wise for you to confine your movements to the regions of Granite Harbour during the second week in January. You will carry a copy of my instructions to the commanding officer of the Terra Nova, which you are at liberty to peruse. This should be left at your depot, and your depot marked, so that the ship has a good chance of finding it in the chance of your absence. You will, of course, make every effort to be at the rendezvous at the proper time, January the 15th, and you need not be surprised if the ship does not appear on the exact date. The commanding officer has been instructed in the following words, quote, I wish the ship to be at Granite Harbour on or about January the 15th. No anxiety need be felt if she is unable to reach this point within a week or so of the date named, end quote. You are now in possession of all the information I can give you on this point and it must be left to your discretion to act in accordance with unforeseen circumstances. Should the ship fail to find you, it is probable she will not make protracted search before going to Cape Evans to gather further particulars and land stores. It is to be remembered also that an extent of fast ice or pack may prevent a search of the coast at this early season. Should the ship fail to appear within a fortnight of the date named, you should prepare to retreat on Hut Point but I am of the opinion that the retreat should not be commenced until the bays have refrozen, probably towards the end of March. An attempt to retreat overland might involve you in difficulties, whereas you could build a stone hut, provision it with seal meat and remain in safety in any convenience station on the coast, and in no case is an early retreat along the coast to be attempted without the full concurrence of the members of your party. Should the ship embark you on or about the proper date, you will take on board your depot stores, except one week's provision. These stores should serve your travelling needs for the remainder of the season. 
Whilst expressing my wishes to the commanding officer of the Terra Nova, I have given him full discretion to act according to circumstances in carrying out the further programme of the season. You will, of course, be under his orders and receive his instructions concerning your further movements. In your capacity as leader of a party, I cannot too strongly impress on you the necessity for caution in your movements. Although you will be probably travelling under good weather conditions, you must remember that violent storms occasionally sweep up the coast, and that the changes of weather are quite sudden, even in summer. I urge this the more especially, because I think your experiences of last year are likely to be misleading. I am confident that it is not safe for a party in these regions to be at a great distance from its camp, and that, for instance, it would be dangerous to be without shelter in such storms as that encountered by the discovery of Coleman Island in early January 1902. With camp equipment, a party is always safe, though it is not easy to pitch tent in a high wind. I can foresee no object before you, which can justify the risk of accident to yourself or to the other members of your party. I wish you to show these instructions to Debenham, who will take charge of the party in case you should be incapacitated. I sincerely hope you'll be able to accomplish your work without difficulty, and I'm sure that Pennell will do his best to help you. Yours, R.F. Scott. 4. Instructions for Dog Teams October 20th Dear Mears, in order that there may be no mistake concerning the important help which it is hoped the dog teams will give to the Southern Party, I have thought it best to set down my wishes as under. Assuming that you carry two bags of oil cake to Hut Point, I want you to take these with five bags of forage to Corner Camp before the end of the month. This will leave two bags of forage at Hut Point. If the motors pass Hut Point en route for the barrier, I should be glad to get all possible information of their progress. About a day after they have passed, if you are at Hut Point, I should like you to run along their tracks for half a day with this object. The motors will pick up the two bags of forage at Hut Point, and they should be placed in a convenient position for this purpose. The general scheme of your work in your first journey over the barrier has been thoroughly discussed, and the details are contained in Table 8 of my plan, of which you should have a copy. I leave you to fix the date of your departure from Hut Point, observing that I should like to join me at one ton camp or very shortly thereafter. We cannot afford to wait. Look for a note from me at Corner Camp. The date of your return must be arranged according to circumstances. Under favourable conditions, you should be back at Hut Point by December the 19th at the latest. After sufficient rest, I should like you to transport to Hut Point such emergency stores as has not yet been sent from Cape Evans. At this time you should see that the Discovery Hut is provisioned to support the Southern Party, and yourself in the autumn in case the ship does not arrive. At some point during this month or early in January, you should make your second journey to One Ton Camp and leave there five eunuchs excess ration, three cases of biscuit, five gallons of oil as much dog food as you can conveniently carry for third journey. This depot should be laid not later than January the 19th, in case of rapid return of first unit of Southern Party. Supposing that you have returned to Hut Point by January the 13th, there will be nothing for you to do on the Southern Road for at least three weeks. In this case, and supposing the ice conditions to be favourable, 
I should like you to go to Cape Evans and await the arrival of the ship. The ship will be short-handed and may have difficulty in landing stores. I should like you to give such assistance as you can without tiring the docks. About the first week of February, I should like you to start your third journey to the south, the object being to hasten the return of the third southern unit and give it a chance to catch the ship. The date of your departure must depend on news received from returning units. The extent of the depot of dog food you have been able to leave at one ton camp, the state of the dogs, etc. Assuming that the ship will have to leave the sound soon after the middle of March, it looks at present as though you should aim at meeting the returning party about March the 1st, in latitude 82 or 82.30. If you are then in a position to advance a few short marches or mark time for five or six days on food bought or ponies killed, you should have a good chance of effecting your object. You will carry with you beyond one ton camp, one excess ration, including biscuit and one gallon of paraffin. And of course, you will not wait beyond the time when you can safely return on back depots. You will, of course, understand that whilst the object of your third journey is important, that of the second is vital. At all hazards, three excess units of provision must be got to one ton camp by the date named. And if the dogs are unable to perform this service, a man party must be organised. Signed, R.F. Scott. 5. Instructions to Lieutenant Victor Campbell. Cape Evans, October 1911. My dear Campbell, this letter assumes that you are landed somewhere to the north of this station, and that Pennell is able to place it in your hands in the third week of February before he returns to McMurdo Sound. From Pennell's instructions, which I have asked him to show you, you will see that there is a probability of some change in the future plans, whereby some members of the expedition remain for a second winter at Camp Evans. You will learn the details of the situation and the history of this station from Pennell and others, and I need not go into these matters. If things should turn out as expected, arrangements will have to be made for the Terra Nova to return to the Ross Sea in the open season of 1912-13. Under these circumstances, an opportunity offers for the continuance of useful work in all directions. I have, therefore, to offer you the choice of remaining in your present station for a second year or of returning in the Terra Nova. I shall not expect you to stay, unless 1. All your party are willing or can be replaced by volunteers. 2. The work in view justifies the step. 3. Your food supplies are adequate. 4. Your party is in a position to be relieved with certainty on and after February 25th, 1913. 5. Levick and Priestley are willing to forgo all legal title to expeditionary salary for the second year. I should explain that this last condition is made only because I am in ignorance of the state of the expeditionary finances. Should you decide to stay, I hope that Pennell may be able to supply all your requirements. Should you decide to return, please inform Priestley that he is at liberty to stay at Cape Evans for the second winter. The same invitation is intended to yourself should you wish to see more of this part of the continent. We could not afford to receive more of your party. Should you not have returned from your sledge trip in time to meet the Terra Nova when she bears this letter, you will understand that the choice of staying or returning is equally open to you when she returns in March. 
In this case, it would, of course, be impossible for any of your party to stay at Cape Evans. Should you see Pennell in February and decide to return, you could remain at your station until the ship sails north in March if you think it advisable. Being so much in the dark concerning all your movements and so doubtful as to my ability to catch the ship, I am unable to give more definite instructions. But I know that both you and Pennell will make the best of the circumstances and always deserve my approval of your actions. In this connection, I conclude by thanking you for the work described in your report of February last. I heartily approve your decision not to winter in King Edward's land, your courteous conduct towards Amundsen and your forethought in returning the two ponies to this station. I hope that all has been well with you and that you've been able to do good work. I'm sure that you've done everything that circumstances permitted and shall be very eager to see your report. With best wishes, etc. R.F. Scott And now it's time to dream. Down through this verdant land Carter walked at evening and even saw twilight float up from the river to the marvellous golden spires of Thran. And just at the hour of dusk he came to the southern gate and was stopped by a red-robed sentry until he had told three dreams beyond belief and proved himself a dreamer worthy to walk up Thran's steep, mysterious streets and linger in the bazaars where the wares of the ornate galleons were sold. Then into that incredible city he walked, through a wall so thick that the gate was a tunnel, and thereafter amidst curve and underland ways winding deep and narrow between the heavenward towers. Lights shone through that grated and balconied windows, and the sound of lutes and pipes stole timid from inner courts where marble fountains bubbled. Carter knew his way, and edged down through the darker streets to the river, where at an old sea tavern he found the captains and seamen he had known in myriad other dreams. There he brought his passage to Selephaeus on a great green galleon, and there he stopped for the night after speaking gravely to the venerable cat of that inn, who blinked dozing before an enormous hearth and dreamed of old wars and forgotten gods. In the morning, Carter boarded the galleon bound for Selephaeus, and sat in the prow as the ropes were cast off and the long sail down to the Cyrenian Sea began. For many leagues, the bank were much as they were above Thran, with now and then a curious temple rising on the further hills towards the right, and a drowsy village on the shore, with steep red roofs and nets spread in the sun. Mindful of his surge, Carter questioned all the mariners closely about whom they had met in the taverns of Selephaeus, the names and the ways of the strange men with the long narrow eyes, long-lobed ears, thin noses, and pointed chins who came in dark ships from the north and traded onyx for the carved jade and spun gold and little red singing birds of Selephaeus. Of these men the sailors knew not much save that they talked but seldom and spread a kind of awe about them. Their land very far away was called Iquanoc, and not many people cared to go thither, because it was a cold twilight land, and said to be close to unpleasant Leng. Although high impassable mountains towered on the side where Leng was thought to lie, so that none might say whether this evil plateau with its horrible stone villages and unmentionable monastery 
were really there, or whether the rumour were only a fear that timid people felt in the night when those formidable barrier peaks loomed black against a rising moon. Certainly men reached Leng from very different oceans. Of other boundaries of Equinox, those sailors had no notion, nor had they heard of the cold waste and unknown Kadath, save from vague unplaced report. And of the marvellous sunset city which Carter sought, they knew nothing at all. So the traveller asked no more questions of far things, but bided his time till he might talk with those strange men from cold and twilight Equinoch, who are the seed of such gods as carved their features on Granek. Late in the day, the galleon reached those bends of the river which traverse the perfumed jungles of Kaid. Here Carter wished he might disembark for in those tropic tangles sleep wondrous palaces of ivory, lone and unbroken, where once dwelt fabulous monarchs of a land whose name is forgotten. Spells of the Elder Ones keep those places unharmed and undecayed, for it is written that there may one day be need of them again, and elephant caravans have glimpsed them from afar by moonlight, though none dares approach them closely, because of the guardians to which their wholeness is due but the ship swept on, and dusk hushed the hum of the day, and the first stars blinked answers to the early fireflies on the banks of that jungle, and fell far behind, leaving only its fragrance as a memory that it had been. And all through the night that galleon floated on past mysteries unseen and unsuspected. Once a lookout reported fires on the hills to the east, but the sleepy captain said, that they'd better not be looked at too much, since it was highly uncertain just who and what had lit them. In the morning, the river had broadened out greatly, and Carter saw by the houses along the banks that they were close to the vast trading city of Llaneth on the Cenarian Sea. Here the walls are of rugged granite, and the houses peakedly fantastic with beamed and plastered gables. The men of Llaneth are more like those of the waking world than any others in the dreamland, so that the city is not sought except for barter, but is prized for the solid work of its artisans. The walls of Llaneth are of oak, and there the galleon made fast while the captain traded in the taverns. Carter also went ashore, and looked curiously upon the rutted streets where wooden ox carts lumbered and Feverish merchants cried their wares vacuously in the bazaars. The sea taverns were all close to the wharves on cobbled lanes, salted with the spray of high tides, and seemed exceedingly ancient with their low black-beam ceilings and casemates of greenish bull's-eye panes. Ancient sailors in those taverns talked much of distant ports, and told many stories of the curious men from Twilight Iquanoch but had little to add to what the seamen of the galleon had already told. Then at last, after much unloading and loading, the ship set sail once more over the sunset sea, and the high walls and gables of Llaneth grew less as the last golden light of the day lent them a wonder and a beauty beyond any that men had given them. Two nights and two days the galleon sailed over the Cenarian Sea sighting no land, and speaking but to one other vessel. 
Then near sunset of the second day there loomed up ahead the snowy peak of Aran, with its ginkgo trees swaying on the lower slope, and Carter knew that they were come to the land of Uthnagai, and the marvellous city of Selephaeus. Swiftly there came into sight the glittering minarets of that fabulous town, and the untarnished marble walls with the bronze statues, and the great stone bridge where Naraxa joins the sea. Then rose the gentle hills behind the town, with their groves and gardens and asphodels and the small shrines and cottages upon them, and far in the background the purple ridge of the Tenarians, potent and mystical, behind which lay forbidden ways into the waking world and towards other regions of dream. The harbour was full of painted galleys, some of which were from the marble cloud city of Serenian, that lies in the ethereal space between where the sea meets the sky, and some of which were from far more substantial parts of dreamland. Among these, the steersman threaded his way up the spice-fragrant wharves, where the galleon made fast in the dusk as the city's million lights began to twinkle out over the water. Ever new seemed this deathless city of vision, for here time has no power to tarnish or to destroy, as it has always been is still the turquoise of Nath-Hothath, and the eighty orchid-wreathed priests are the same who builded it ten thousand years ago. Shining still is the bronze of the great gates, nor are the onyx pavements ever worn or broken, and the great bronze statues on the walls look down on merchants and camel drivers older than fable, yet without one grey hair in their forked beards. Carter did not once seek out the temple, or the palace, or the citadel, but stayed by the seaward wall among traders and sailors, and when it was too late for rumours and legends he sought out an ancient tavern he knew well, and rested with dreams of the gods on unknown Kadath whom he sought. The next day he searched all along the quays for some of the strange mariners of Equinox, but was told that none were now in port the galley not being due from the north for full two weeks. He found, however, one Thorobonian sailor, who had been to Equinox and had worked in the onyx quarries of that twilight place, and this sailor said there was certainly a descent to the north of the peopled region, which everybody seemed to fear and to shun. The Thorobonian opined that this desert led around the utmost rim of impassable peaks into Leng's horrible plateau, and that this was why men feared it, though he admitted there were other vague tales of evil presences and nameless sentinels. Whether or not this could be the fabled waste wherein unknown Kadath stands, he did not know, but it seemed unlikely that those presences and sentinels, if indeed they existed, were stationed for naught. On the following day, Carter walked up the street of the pillars to the turquoise temple and talked with the high priest. Though Nath-Hurthath is chiefly worshipped in Selephaeus, all the great ones are mentioned in diurnal prayers, and the priest was reasonably versed in their moods. Like Atal in distant Ulthar, he strongly advised against any attempts to see them, declaring that they are testy and capricious and subject to strange protection from the mindless other gods from outside, whose soul and messenger is the crawling chaos Nyarlathotep. 
Their jealous hiding of the marvellous sunset city showed clearly that they did not wish Carter to reach it, and it was doubtful how they would regard a guest whose object was to see them and to plead before them. No man had ever found Kadath in the past, and it might be just as well if none ever found it in the future. Such rumours as were told about that onyx castle of the Great Ones were not by any means reassuring. Having thanked the orchid-crowned high priest, Carter left the temple and sought out the bazaar of the sheep butchers, where the old chief of Celephaeus's cat dwelt sleek and contented. That grey and dignified being was sunning himself on the onyx pavement, and extended a languid paw as his caller approached. But when Carter repeated the passwords and introductions furnished him by the old cat General of Ulthar, the furry patriarch became very cordial and communicative, and told much of the secret law known to cats on the seaward slopes of Uth-Nagai. Best of all, he repeated several things told him furtively by the timid waterfront cats of Selephaeus about the men of Iquanog, on whose dark ships no cat will go. It seems that these men have an aura not of earth about them, though that is not the reason why no cat will sail on their ships. The reason for this is that Equinox holds shadows which no cat can endure, so that in all that cold twilight realm there is never a cheering purr or a homely mew. Whether it be because of things wafted over the impassable peaks from hypothetical Leng, or because of things filtering down from the chilly desert to the north, none may say. But it remains a fact that in the far land there broods a hint of outer space which cats do not like and to which they are more sensitive than men. Therefore they will not go on the dark ships that seek the basalt keys of Equinox. The old chief of the cats also told him where to find his friend King Corains, who in Carter's latter dreams had reigned alternately in the rose-crystal palace of the Seventy Delights at Selephaeus and in the turreted cloud castle of sky-floating Seranian. It seemed that he could no longer find content in those places, but had formed a mighty longing for the English cliffs and downlands of his boyhood, where in little dreaming villages England's old songs hover at evening behind lattice windows, and where grey church towers peep lovingly over the verdure of distant valleys. He could not go back to these things in the waking world, because his body was dead, and he had done the next best thing and dreamed a small tract of such countryside in the region east of the city where meadows roll gracefully up from the sea cliffs to the foot of the Tenarian hills. There he dwelt, in a grey Gothic manor-house of stone, looking on to the sea, and tried to think it was ancient Trevor Towers, where he was born, and where thirteen generations of his forefathers had first seen the light. And on the coast nearby, he had built a little Cornish fishing village, with steep cobbled ways, setting therein such people as had the most English faces, and seeking ever to teach them the dear-remembered accents of old Cornwall fishers. And in a valley not far off, he had reared a great Norman abbey, whose towers he could see from his window, placing around it in the churchyard grey stones with the names of his ancestors carved thereon, and with a moss somewhat like old England's moss. For though Corains was a monarch in the land of dreams, with all the imagined pomps and marvels, splendours and beauties, ecstasies and delights, novelties and excitements at his command, 
He would gladly have resigned forever the whole of his power and luxury, and freedom, for one blessed day as a simple boy in that pure and quiet England, that ancient beloved England, which had moulded his being and of which he must always be immutably a part. So when Carter bade that old grey chief of the cats adieu, he did not seek the terraced palace of Rose Crystal, but walked out on the eastern gate and across the daisied fields towards a peaked gable, which he glimpsed through the oaks of a park sloping up to the sea cliffs. And in time he came to a great hedge and a gate with a little brick lodge, and when he rang the bell there hobbled to admit him no robed and anointed lackey of the palace, but a small stubby old man in a smock, who spoke as best he could in the quaint tones of far Cornwall. And Carter walked up the shady path between the trees as near as possible to England's trees, and climbed the terraces amongst gardens set out as in Queen Anne's time. At the door, flanked by stone cats in the old way, he was met by a whiskered butler in suitable livery, and was presently taken to the library where Corains, lord of Uthnagai and the sky around Serenian, sat pensive in a chair by the window, looking on his old little seacoast village, and wishing that his old nurse would come in and scold him, because he was not ready for that hateful lawn party at the vicar's, with the carriage waiting and his mother nearly out of patience. Corains, clad in a dressing gown of the sort favoured by London tailors in his youth, rose eagerly to meet his guest. For the sight of an Anglo-Saxon from the waking world was very dear to him, even if it was a Saxon from Boston, Massachusetts, instead of from Cornwall. And for long they talked of old times, having much to say because both were old dreamers and well-versed in the wonders of the incredible places. Corains, indeed, had been out beyond the stars in the ultimate voyage, and was said to be the only one who had ever returned sane from such a voyage. At length Carter brought up the subject of his quest, and asked of his host those questions he had asked of so many others. Corains did not know where Cadath was, or the marvellous Sunset City, but he did know that the Great Ones were very dangerous creatures to seek out, and that the other gods had strange ways of protecting them from impertinent curiosity. He had learned much of the other gods in distant parts of space, especially in that region where form does not exist, and coloured gases study the innermost secrets. The violet gas, Sarniak, had told him terrible things of the crawling chaos Nyarlathrotep, and had warned him never to approach the central void where the daemon sultan Azathoth gnaws hungrily in the dark. Altogether, it was not well to meddle with the Elder Ones, and if they persistently denied all access to the marvellous Sunset City, it were better not to seek that city. Corains furthermore doubted whether his guest would profit aught by coming to the city, even if he were to gain it. He himself had dreamed and yearned long years for lovely Selephaeus, and the land of Uthnagai, and for the freedom and colour and high experience of life devoid of its chains, and conventions and stupidities. But now that he was come into that city, and that the land and was the king thereof, he found the freedom and the vividness all too soon worn out, and monotonous for want of linkage with anything firm in his feelings and memories. He was a king in Uthnagai, 
but found no meaning therein, and drooped always for the old familiar things of England that had shaped his youth. All his kingdom would he give for the sound of a Cornish church bell over the downs, and all the thousand minarets of Celepheus for the steep homely roofs of a village near his home. So he told his guest that the unknown sunset city might not hold quite that content that he sought, and that perhaps it had better remain a glorious and half-remembered dream. For he had visited Carter often in the old waking days, and knew well the lovely New England slopes that had given him birth. At the last, he was very certain the seeker would long only for the early remembered scenes, the glow of Beacon Hill at evening, the tall steeples and winding hill streets of quaint Kingsport, the hoary gambrel roofs of ancient and witch-haunted Arkham, and the blessed meads and valleys where stone walls rambled and white farmhouse gables peeped out from the bowers of verdure. These things he told Randolph Carter. But still the seeker held to his purpose, and in the end they parted each with his own conviction, and Carter went back through the bronze gate into Celepheus, and down the street of pillars to the old sea wall, where he talked more with the mariners of far ports, and waited for the dark ship from cold and twilight Iquanoch, whose strange-faced sailors and onyx traders had in them the blood of the Great Ones. And that's all for today. Except to remind you of my Patreon account, where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast, but also all the other books I record. At the moment, I'm recording a Napoleonic memoir called Recollections of a Peninsula Veteran, also Space Viking by H. Beam Piper, and the first volume of the Pentagon Papers, which reveals the dark underbelly of the US's decision-making on the Vietnam War. Please go to patreon.com and search there for Felbrick. That's F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Until next time. 